our scripture reading for today is from Genesis 1, verses 26 through 31. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humankind in God's own image. In the image of God, God created them. Male and female, God created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that God had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. And our New Testament reading for today is from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 19 through 23. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. The word of the Lord. You know, as disruptive COVID-19 has been to our whole world, one of the most surprising effects of this pandemic quarantine is seeing how much human activity has impacted the world around us. Because humans have decreased travel and commuting and even industrial production, we've been able to see the world in a new light. You may have seen this image of the Los Angeles skyline. This is post-COVID quarantine. Did you know that there are actually mountains there? And the sky is blue, not a murky brown. Here's an image of Delhi, uh, Delhi, India. The left side is before COVID, the right side is after COVID. Cities around the world are also reporting sightings of uh, animals and native animals in the neighborhoods, in the cities. As people have retreated into their homes, the animals feel comfortable moving in. Animal and nature lovers rejoice at news reports like this. Yet there's a downside to this lockdown for nature. Work to limit invasive species has halted, and protecting endangered species has slowed down. Many parks have closed because of to limit the gathering of crowds there. But when they reopen, there's going to be they're expecting an inundation of crowds returning, which will destroy the flora and fauna that have flourished in these times. Recognize that there's a need for people and organizations to help us manage our natural resources. 
And this lockdown has given us an opportunity to recognize that human activity does impact the world around us in both negative and in positive ways. But the question is, is what is the degree of our interaction with the world around us? And more importantly, how do we determine the extent of that involvement and interaction? And especially as followers of Jesus, what does Scripture say about the degree of that interaction? That's why we're starting this series entitled, Fare Thee Well, Earth. In this series, we're going to explore these questions over the next couple of weeks with help from some of our elders who work in the field of ecology. Next week, Matt Sickle, who is a landscape architect, is going to uh, ex uh, speak on how our environmental decisions impact our local and global neighbors. And the following week, Philip Cho, who works in environmental policy, will speak on our relationship with animals and the use of natural resources. So we invite you to join us each week through this sermon series. We hope through this series that we'll, we'll focus less on specific policies, but explore how scripture might inform how we think about those matters. We invite you, if you want to unpack some of your questions, to join us in our 3D sessions that happen at 11.30 after the service, where we have a chance to see each other's faces and, and explore some of the questions we might have. We'll have some more information about that at the end of the service. Today, we're going to begin this series by exploring this idea of dominion and rule and authority that is found in Scripture, and to see what extent do humans have in our sovereignty over the created world. We're going to walk through a number of Scriptures today and discover what God's Word says about our rights versus our responsibilities, our response ability, and the implications of that response ability. So we invite you to join along. If, you, if you're if you a note taker and you like to follow along with your Bible, uh, just a heads up that we're going to be running through a number of different scriptures in this first section. So you can always come back to view this after on, on the YouTube video after or listen online. David the psalmist opens with Psalm 24 with this grand declaration, saying, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. For he laid the earth's foundation on the seas and built it on the ocean's depths. Paul, David is saying God is overall. Everything belongs to God. God is the ruler over creation. God is the one with ultimate dominion and rights over all of creation. Yet in, this creation, in the creation account, God gives humans some conferred authority over creation. As Anne read for us just a moment ago in Genesis 1, God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock, and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. He continues saying, God created man, humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then in verse 28, he repeats again, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And God continues to say that in verse 29 and 30, that every seed-bearing plant is given, every tree with fruit has been given as food, and the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it will sow. 
From the very beginning, God entrusts creation to the care of humanity, recognizing that everything belongs to God. God entrusts humankind, both women and men, with this great task of ordering and naming creation. As, it, as the creation narrative unfolds in Genesis chapter 2, we're told that it's in the midst of this honorable task of naming and ordering creation that God provides a helper to Adam and Eve. And this idea of helper in the original language Hebrew is not one of subjugating one to the one being helped, but is one who supplies strength needed in the area of one being helped. Adam and Eve are together fit for one another. They complement one another in the commission rule of ruling over creation. And this idea of ruling over continues in other parts of scripture as well. In another psalm, David marvels at the role of humankind over creation in Psalm chapter 8, verse 6 and 8. There he says, you make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. Everything in creation God has given humanity to rule over. The writer of the New Testament, uh, the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament quotes this specific psalm and further illuminates humanity's role over creation. In Hebrews 2 verse 8, there he says, in putting everything under them, that's humans, God left nothing that is not subject to them. In scripture, it's scriptures like these that convey a sense of right and authority and dominion over creation. And this idea of dominion that God has granted over all creation to be mastered and to be used by humanity. So hum humans do play a special role in God's creation. Humans aren't just another evolved animal, but have been formed by God to, God to do God's work in the world. God has commissioned humans to rule over, to have dominion over the earth. They have the right to rule. But this can lead to an anthropocentric view of our place in creation. Anthropocentric meaning where humans are the center of all creation. Apart from recognizing God as God, we can be led to believe that human beings are the most valuable part of God's creation and the most important part of everything. So that non-human parts of creation are valuable only so much as they serve to benefit humankind. Even respected Christians throughout history have conveyed this idea. For example, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, said that all creatures were made for human beings. And John Calvin, the founder of the Reformed tradition, said all things were ordained for the use of man. Those are true if we read scriptures like this. The command to rule and to have dominion over the earth can often be seen as a right to subdue, to alter, and even exploit nature for humans' benefit. Yet, in the book of Revelations, we're told that there are ways that humans interact with the world that God will one day judge negatively. In Revelations 11, verse 8, it says, The time has come for judging the dead. There will be a time when judgment comes, and for those destroying, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. There's a time when our actions will be accounted for. So, 
what if humans do have a special role in creation, but it's not a hierarchical role between humans and nature. They have a, we have a responsibility to go along with that rule, that right. It's a responsibility as God's image bearers. Our rule and our dominion is not without accountability. They are subject to the one who grants that rule and subject to this judgment of the living God who has given humans the right and the responsibility over creation. In other words, God has granted humanity a role to master created order, beginning with the naming of animals and the cultivating of crops for food in the creation story. Human interaction with the world around us is to master it, but for the benefit of creation and to the glory of God, not just for our selfish gain. See, mastery of anything requires an understanding of that which is mastered. An opera singer must understand the intricacies of her own vocal cords and the diaphragm and the nasal cavity and the tongue position that creates all these tones that her hearers will delight in. An artist seeks to understand the complexities of color and perspective and, and lighting, as well as the medium and raw materials of wood and stone and metal and canvas that he works with to create these beautiful masterpieces for enjoyment. So too does human responsibility over creation. Our mastery over creation is intended to bring out the beauty and mutual benefit for all of creation, not just for our immediate benefit. That's the combination of rights versus responsibility that we find in Scripture. But how do we get there? How do we navigate this line between our rights and responsibilities? We can all see how easy it is to convince ourselves that everything, uh, something is for everyone's benefit when it's really about our selfish interests. Just read the news, especially in this past week, for ample examples of that human instinct. You know, people can assert or even protest their rights to freedom, their rights to do what they want with their position or with their land, or with their business, their rights to do with their natural resources on their property. But how do we balance these rights with the responsibility to our neighbors? We might have the legal right to dig deeper on our property into the water table to water our farms and to drink. But what is our responsibility to care for our human and non-human neighbors? and appeal to your rights without recognizing your responsibility for your neighbors and for future generations can be a failure to faithfully bear God's image in the world. We see that take place at the very beginning, too, in, in, in a town called Babel in Genesis 11. We're told in that narrative that people moved eastward. They moved away from the garden. And that kind of signals humanity's movement away from God. We're told that they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Like the God whose image they bore, they took earth and they began to form it. But with technology developed by humans. They took the heat of a furnace and the molding of earth into shapes and the built, being built up from the ground into this tower. This is an act of creation. In this case, though, it's done apart from God. 
Was the use of technology and the creative act of building sinful in and of itself? No. But it was the motive that was the problem. In the next verse, we're told why. They say, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and so that we won't be scattered over the face of this earth. You see, what they did was they used their God-given creativity and innovation to conform the earth for their own vanity and glory rather than for the good of creation and for God's glory. They used their creativity and their rights for their own self-protection and for out of their insecurity rather than rooting themselves in God's story for creation. Because of that selfish instinct that continues even today in our hearts, the natural environment continues to suffer under the weight of human sin. In fact, the Apostle Paul describes how creation is groaning under this weight in Romans 8. Verse 19, we're told that creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in the hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Creation is longing for glory. Creation is subjected to frustration because of humanity's role in creation in abdicating responsible care for creation ever since our first parents sinned in the garden. But praise God, there's hope. There's hope for creation and there's hope for humankind and they are intricately linked together, as Paul tells us in this passage. For Paul, the hope of creation and its liberation and its flourishing, that's a description of God's glory, is rooted in the freedom and the glory of God's children. New York City pastor Tim Keller unpacks this passage saying, a glory is coming that will be so blindingly powerful that when it falls on God's children, it will envelope the whole created order and glorify it along with us. God's children will bring nature with us into a renewed, restored, redeemed reality. Paul continues to describe how God's children are enjoying the first fruits of God's spirit in the following verses. He says that we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we see that in our world, don't we? Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Because God's Spirit is at work in our hearts, we confess and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we respond to God's Spirit, we have been legally adopted into God's family. That's already a truth, and that's what we have hope in. But the not yet part of our adoption is this privilege of receiving our resurrected and redeemed bodies. So we live in this in-between time. Between now and then, we live with the rights of being God's children and the responsibility and the response ability in this world through the resurrected life of Christ at work in our lives by God's Spirit. The ability to respond rightly and responsibility comes from God. 
not from ourselves. And that gives us great freedom. That gives us great hope because it doesn't all depend on us, although we have a great part to play in it. Uh, We've covered a lot of ground so far, so let's recap. God has ultimate dominion over all creation. God assigns that dominion over creation to humanity, but humans mess this up by not taking the rights and the responsibility because we're sinful. And creation is impacted because of it. It's groaning under the weight of humanity's sin. So what's the way out? It's not just to work and care for creation, but it's to respond first to God's Spirit's work in our hearts regarding our sin that prevents us from living fully into this co-mission with God for his care in the world. So in this in-between time, between the already and not yet of being adopted children of God, how do we live wielding our rights, wielding our responsibility, and our responsibility in God's spirit? When Yellowstone was created in 1872, the National Park did not provide any protection for predators like grizzly bears and wolves in the park from hunters and tourists. So by by 1926, about 50 years later, the wolves had been essentially eliminated from the park, in part due to political pressure from cattle and livestock ranchers in their area. They were concerned over losing their livestock to these wolves and the financial cost and impact to them and their operations. They were afraid. They were afraid of losing money and afraid for their lives. Without wolves in the park, though, there was an impact. The elk population grew despite human attempts to control them. The growing elk population overgrazed all the willow and the cottonwood and the aspen in the valleys, which affected the beaver's ability to build dams, and that upset the whole ecosystem in Yellowstone Park. But in 1995, park managers reintroduced gray wolves into the park. And over these past few decades, they've witnessed a restoration of many habitats and the balance in this ecosystem. Because wolves were reintroduced, elk and coyote territories shifted in the park. Elk populations reduced, which allowed trees to grow in the valley. In some cases, trees grew to five times the height than before wolves were were reintroduced. The abundance of trees and uh, allowed birds to return back to the park, and beavers began to build their dams again. And because the dams slowed the flow of water, seasonal pulses of water runoff improved, and reptile and fish populations grew, and the water table increased as a result. The coyote population shifted as a result of these changes, which altered the territory of their prey, like hares and rabbits and smaller rodents. Because those populations shifted, more hawks and weasels came back in. And the populations changed how certain, those changes affected how certain roots and buds and seeds got eaten. And berries started growing, so grizzly bears started feeding better too. And their population grew. Most notably, the introduction of of wolves back into the area resulted in rivers and soil stabilizing in the park. This process is what scientists call trophic cascade. It's how the presence of an apex predator like the wolf, a superior creature in this 
kind of ecosystem, it did kill some animals, but it also gave life to many others in the ecosystem. You know, wolves disappear from Yellowstone due to human activity. They use their technology of guns and hunting and their mobility to hunt the wolves to extin extinction out of fear and likely out of ignorance of its impact. Without the wolves, the ecosystem of the park went out of balance. Humans unsuccessfully tried to rebalance it and to control it by wielding power and managing the population of elk. But aided by pop, uh, science and technology and research, it was also human intervention that reintroduced the wolves into the park, resulting in the renewal of life in the entire animal, natural, and physical environment. You see, humans had the right to manage and hunt, but they also had the responsibility to use their creativity and ingenuity to help the ecosystem flourish. I think that's a picture of what God calls us to do. Our Catholic friends have done some great thinking about our rights and responsibilities as co-rulers with God in this natural environment. Pope John Paul II writes, this comes up on the screen here, the dominion granted to man by the Creator is not an absolute power, nor can one speak of a freedom to use and misuse, or to dispose of things as one pleases. The limitation imposed from the beginning by the Creator Himself and expressed symbolically by the prohibition, prohibition not to eat of the fruit of the tree shows clearly enough that when it comes to the natural world, we are subject not only to biological laws, but also to moral ones, which cannot be violated with impunity. As God's children participating with God's, the work of God's Spirit, we begin to seek the common good, not just for fellow humans and for the earth now, but for future generations. In creation, only humans have been gifted with this ability to create, to innovate through science and technology and research, to accomplish great things with efficiency and productivity. We've been gifted with this ability to rule over and master creation. But the question is, is will we do these things with right, fully with our rights and with our response ability? Will we do these things with our God-given ability, but responding to God-given impulses, not to our own selfish impulses. Caring for our natural environment starts with caring for one of the most unnatural environments that's closest to us. That's our hearts. You know, it's really easy to point out the selfishness and the sinfulness of others and what they're doing, but inviting the Holy Spirit of God to point out our own selfishness and our own sinfulness is what leads uh, to a flourishing. Because apart from that, that will lead to devaluing others and the environment around us. When we're tempted to claim our rights and our freedoms, it's the Spirit of God that reminds us of our responsibility to God, to others, and to the environment. It's the Spirit of God that reminds us of the work of the most superior being in the ecosystem. The one who comes not to be served, but to serve. Jesus comes not to kill, but to be killed 
for the flourishing of all creation. During Earth Week, how timely is it that we are reminded of humanity's unique role in creation? We have been given all the rights, but we have also been given all the responsibility. And one day we will be held accountable for how we wield that right and those responsibilities. It's walking in Jesus' footsteps and responding to the work of God's Spirit in our hearts that we fulfill that role with great humility, but also with great beauty. As we sung earlier, for the beauty of the earth and to the praise of your glorious name, Lord, may it be so.